right call. There's definitely times uh, as the years have passed by where I've gone, why did you do that? <laughs> Being in an organization where there was, I think, 17 different nationalities, um, that really cemented my desire to go and just see as much of the world as, as I can. And uh, and then hearing the stories about how guys would have come from these places in the middle of nowhere and had made their way to France to pursue the dream of playing rugby. There was a lot of really inspirational stuff. The, the reason any of us started playing in rugby or playing rugby in the first place or got in, getting involved in rugby in the first place is to have fun. You know, we were kids. We did it because it was something we enjoyed doing. It was a social thing. Welcome to the Off-Field Rugby Pod. In this podcast, I uncover the secrets of how the best do what they do. And this is the podcast to listen to if you want to fulfill your potential as a player, coach, or as a person. I'm your host, Brian Moylet, former Irish age-grade international player, now mindset and performance coach, and author of the book on how to become a pro rugby player. This is the only book written to help rugby players with the mental side of the game. And it's the book that I needed 10 years ago. The foreword is by Robbie Henshaw. You can get your copy now on Amazon. The audiobook is on Audible. And if you're not yet on Audible, you can get it for free using a trial. And the link for that is in the podcast description. Please follow me on Instagram at Offfield Rugby, LinkedIn, Brian Moylet. Send the pod on to some friends and please leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. If you want to work with me one on one or with your team, please message me through my website, offfieldrugby.com. Cheers. So chat to me about what we were just chatting there uh, offline, I suppose. Um, so moving to Vancouver and you've got involved a bit with coaching. Yeah, so my first coaching gig, uh, I guess gig might be uh, a bit lofty word to use for it. But yeah, so I was planning on playing when I came out here and just due to my body being in the condition that it's in, I wasn't able to play. And uh, I was planning on playing with uh, the Vancouver Rowers, who, who you would be very familiar with, obviously. And uh, I got in touch with uh, Duncan James, who's the head coach there, and said, look, I'm not going to be able to play. But he said, uh, we'd still be keen for you to come in and just give a hand um, doing bits and pieces if you were happy to do that. So, uh, yeah, decided I'd give coaching a go and uh, I'm enjoying it a lot. It's very different, obviously, to playing different side of the fence, I guess. Um, that's probably a bit a dramatic a way to, to phrase it, but it is different. You know, there's a different dynamic, different relationships with the players. I mean, ultimately, uh, I'm doing it from a social point of view to get to know guys and everything else. And from that point of view, it's definitely succeeding and it has succeeded. But in terms of the on-pitch stuff and the rugby-specific stuff, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. You, you have to take a different perspective on things, both in... I guess how you present stuff and how you interact with the people around you as well. But uh, I'm enjoying it a lot. I'm enjoying, uh, like I'm learning a lot and I'm definitely glad that I've gone for it for sure. Yeah. And so you mentioned there the playing. So after you finished up in Grenoble, you played, you've played a bit since. That's right. So I dislocated my hip in my last game in France and uh, that kind of co- coincided with when I was going to finish up anyway. Um, so it's not like I, not like I was planning on playing after that, after that's uh, 2018, 20, 2019 season. Um, so it, it, you know, it wasn't ideal. Obviously, it's never ideal to dislocate your hip, but um, it wasn't uh, like it scuppered any plans that I had to play at a high level again. Saying that, I was offered, I was offered more contracts in that summer when I actually had a dislocated hip than I had been offered at any other time or any other off season before. So uh, yeah, I guess that's the way the cookie crumbles, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I took a break from rugby completely for two and a half years. Uh, I went back. I moved to Belgium kind of uh, about a year and a bit after finishing up in France. So I moved back to Ireland for a little bit. Had to finish up some studies at UL and uh, went to Brussels with my wife in September 2020 and I, so I got back into playing GA over there I uh, had played GA all my life you know as a young fella um, had played football and hurling that was I'm from, from the countryside in Cork so that's kind of uh, part of the course there as it is in many parts of rural Ireland or every part of rural Ireland I suppose so yeah I had no interest in playing rugby for a while and then started to get the itch a little bit again and uh, 
yeah, had just gotten back into watching rugby and kind of paying close attention to it. I was writing about it again after a bit of a, a little bit of a break from um, writing with the examiner. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'm young enough to do it. My hips feels okay. I'm able to play this sport. So I'll go back and see what it's like. So I played with uh, Brussels Celtics, they're called. They'd be a third division Belgian side. So, you know, not... Uh, not, not lighting up the world of European rugby uh, by, by any means, or even Belgian rugby for that matter. But uh, it was great, and I was I was thrilled when I when I went back uh, and was able to just enjoy the kind of atmosphere and the vibe that you have in a rugby club. Um, I guess I had been I had been out of the GA for so long that it was kind of it was coming into it uh, as a newbie again, almost. Whereas going back to the rugby, it was just. It was very much that I felt at home again. So, uh, you know, we, we had people from all over the world there and uh, got to play in the back row for the first time in my adult life. So I got to play number eight, which is far more enjoyable and far easier on the body than playing in the front row. And uh, yeah, I guess that was that was probably when I touched on the coaching a little bit. So I was the only ex-pro in the club that they, they wouldn't get a lot of guys that have played professionally previously. And so it was nice to be able to just impart, I guess, bits and pieces of wisdom there. We had a young coaching ticket as well. It was their first time actually doing any coaching at all themselves. So um, they were able to lean on me a bit and I was able to give my perspective of my time in Munster and my time in Grenoble as well. So, uh, yeah, very enjoyable experience. And unfortunately, yeah, as I said, uh, my hip eventually gave up on me and said no more of this. So uh, no more playing, but hopefully plenty of coaching ahead of me at least. Yeah, good stuff. And what was it about it that you decided in that kind of 2019 that you were done with the program and that you had had enough? I think from my point of view, it had probably run its course at that stage, I would say, in that I had kind of, in, in terms of like what I was going to achieve as a professional athlete, um, the monster thing had had kind of come and gone and the Ireland thing uh, as a result, you know, wasn't going to be a runner anymore. Like I wasn't going to land back in Ireland and sign for one of the provinces and then, um, you know, start making shapes with a view to breaking into the Irish side that that ship had sailed as far as I was concerned. So I enjoyed living in France. I enjoyed it a lot, but the rugby side of things, I, I just didn't enjoy as much as I used to anymore. And there was a combination of things uh, in that, I suppose. Um, and a big a big part of that was the fact that my body was just um, a bit shagged, really, at that stage. Um, had some bad bad history with injuries over the years, with kind of major injuries. But, you know, a major injury is one thing in the sense you're sidelined for a while, but you're usually able to get back to full fitness if you're being well looked after, if you take good care of yourself, and you can kind of pick up where you left off to an extent. Um, but just a lot of niggly injuries like neck problems, back problems, my groins were giving me a lot of trouble. So just was in pain a lot of the time, really. And, and I felt ultimately that I wasn't able to perform at the level that I previously could. And like, that's fine. And invariably, most people, certainly most people that don't play test rugby uh, over a period of time will experience that kind of slump at a certain point or that decline in their performance um, at a certain point but uh, for me yeah I, I just didn't like the fact that I wasn't I uh, wasn't able to deliver the way that I used to be able to so uh, yeah it was kind of a combination of things Brian really and ultimately just led to me deciding that look I'm I'm young I'm probably young to be retiring but ultimately stopping at this age would allow me to pursue some other things that maybe I wouldn't be able to do uh, if I left this for another three or four years or even two years, whatever it was. Uh, so, yeah, I just decided to bite the bullet. And uh, while my logical brain would still say that it was definitely the right call, there's definitely times uh, as the years have passed by where I've gone, why did you do that? <laughs> you could still be doing this. Uh, but, you know, yourself, you look back on everything with rose-tinted glasses after the passage of time. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think it was definitely the right decision for me. Yeah. And like, yeah, you mentioned the injuries and that and for sure, but like you weren't worried about say money. Like I know it's a big thing with people with contracts, you know, or like you're, you're obviously you're playing professionally, you're earning decent money and you weren't, you had had enough that was like, yeah, I'm just going to step away and do this other thing. That wasn't a, wasn't kind of pulling you in or keeping you there. Or... I guess uh, I was, I wouldn't say I was lucky, but I was in a, in a situation that meant that, 
finances or financial like financial obligations were less of a thing for me so there there was just my wife and I we have no kids at the moment so I guess I had the luxury of stepping away from it and not having you know I, I know guys that retired around the same time who had three kids and a big mortgage that kind of thing and certainly with that there's an added pressure I guess to keep playing if you're in that position so just with the timing of things the fact that um again I was young to be retiring I I had less of those uh how would I how would I put it less of those adult responsibilities I suppose as a, as a 28 year old uh which gave me the freedom to step away from it without worrying about being in a panic or like having to find work immediately or having to get on the ladder to earning x amount of money in a specific period of time um i had you know i i didn't make buckets of money playing rugby but like you said i was reasonably well paid for a few years i didn't do it for terribly long but uh i had a little bit of a cushion which allowed me to do that and uh yeah i, I was kind of fortunate in that respect because I, I guess a lot of guys do either find themselves obliged to keep trying to play if they're not feeling it because of that obligation or if they do decide to step away from it they're doing so um, while taking on the burden of that stress of having to provide financially for those around them. So I managed to avoid that. So I, I was lucky in that respect. Mm. And you mentioned then going back to study and moving to Brussels. And so what, chat to me about, um, yeah, like what kind of pulled you away? You know, some people, you hear of people retiring that they they have no other options or that's why they keep playing because it's like, what else will I do? But you obviously kind of thought, ah, I wouldn't mind giving, doing this and this. And so, yeah, chat to me about what, um, what that was and how you found it. Yeah, sure. So I guess, like, I've always liked to travel and uh, always would have been someone that liked to travel to unusual places, we'll say. But even at that, when I was very settled in Munster and I was settled in Limerick I was saying to myself you know what I'm going to be happy to stay here for good um see out my career in Munster which I thought was going to last uh, much longer than it did and then you know just stay put afterwards and that was the plan and moving to France happened all of a sudden I went over mid-season I was gone uh, you know I think it was a week and a half after having an initial conversation with one of the coaches at Grenoble so it all happened in a hurry so it was very much no time to dwell on it just drop everything and go and while I found it very difficult in that initial period it was the best thing that ever happened to me because uh it just opened my horizons I guess and gave me a different perspective on the world and made me see that you know you could you can move to a new place where you don't know anyone where you don't really speak the language at all and still settle in uh, build a community around yourself and have a really good time enjoying a new culture and enjoying meeting new people and seeing new things. Uh, so following my time in France, uh, I was keen to just go and live somewhere else, basically. Um, not that there was anything wrong with saying put in Limerick. It was just, I, I just had an urge to kind of go out and see something else. And I would say a part of that was not wanting to be too close to the rugby scene or like, you know, Limerick's a small place. Uh, and I'd still be good pals with quite a few of the lads that are still playing. So invariably there would be that kind of awkwardness of kind of being close to the circle but not being really in the circle you know do you go and watch games and kind of have those awkward conversations with people about what you're doing now that you're not playing for Munster anymore all of that kind of stuff uh kind of uh pointed me in the direction of just going away and seeing something else and um I guess why we went to Brussels specifically was that uh, I wanted to get into working in something in the political sphere. I've always been interested in politics and that was something that I wanted to pursue after rugby and uh, was always interested in European politics and there's buckets of opportunity for people that want to go and pursue that in Brussels. So uh, that was the decision really. And again, it was kind of a little bit of a whim. I kind of, you know, suggested it to Sarka and uh, she was up for it. So we didn't put too much thought into it. We just kind of... We just just went for it and uh, spent a little over two years there. And uh, uh, yeah, it was a great experience, um, but uh, we weren't going to stay there long term, I guess we decided. Didn't want to go back to Ireland just yet. So here I am now in Vancouver and uh, yeah, enjoying it a lot. And I think uh, it's, yeah, I, I think had I not had that experience in France, I probably just would have stayed put in Limerick, even if things had run their course at Munster, I, I probably would have ended up staying there. And while there is nothing wrong with that at all, I think I would have missed out on a lot of the experiences that I've gotten to have in the 
last almost four years that I've had since finishing up. Mm, cool. And did I see you was it when you were in Brussels that you're involved in something, the European Commission? Yeah, that's right. So I spent a year working in the private sector and uh, just over a year working for the European Commission. So I, I was doing communications for the Department of Agriculture there. So um, it was, it was uh, yeah, I, I guess a lot of people who move to Brussels, they do so with a view to working in one of the big institutions at a certain point um, or another. So it was cool to have been able to do that. But uh, yeah, not the most exciting work, I would say. So I was happy to have dipped my toe in and then uh, pull it back out. Um, probably not a specific type of role that I would go back into again. I was I was the web editor for the Department of Agriculture, so um, was basically in charge of kind of everything that went out online. So um, a lot of a lot of writing content, a lot of editing content, uh, some stuff that was very interesting, very time sensitive. A lot of stuff about the invasion of Ukraine, for example, when all that kicked off because of the knock on effects on food security and that kind of thing. But um, the majority of it was fairly mundane, I would say. So uh, glad to have seen it, but and to have ticked the box off. Um, but also glad to know that it's not something I'd probably jump back into. Yeah, and is politics is that is that for politics as a whole or like or just that kind of area? Uh, so yeah, I, I I suppose domestic politics, international politics. I've always kind of been interested in current affairs. I would say, uh, so I always had it in my head that I definitely wanted to work in something to do communi- do with communications because uh, I always enjoyed doing media work. I, I I liked the writing that I did for the Examiner while I was playing. So. Um, it seemed like a natural shift for someone with an interest in politics and kind of with a bit of a, a bit of experience doing various types of communication work. So that was probably to my detriment, to be honest, because I suppose a lot of people finish up and they have no idea what they want to do. And they're kind of forced to go through that process of, you know, what do they want out of a job? What kind of sector do they want to work in? Um, what kind of work-life balance do they want? You know, they, they kind of have to drill down into it a little bit more. Whereas I probably skipped that part of it, uh, um, which was a mistake because I was like, I definitely want to work in this kind of specific job, but I, I didn't have a proper appreciation of what that would probably involve. So having worked in, I guess, communications of a political or a policy nature for two and a bit years, I was like, do you know what? I, I, I'm not actually that keen on doing that uh, anymore. So I'm working in med- medical device sales here now in Vancouver, which is a complete departure from what I was doing previously. But having done a lot more of that, uh, I guess, holistic self-reflection of what do I want out of a job? What do I want my day to look like? Uh, do I want to be working with people? Um, all of that kind of stuff. Um what will suit my character as kind of an, a natural extrovert that loves feeding off other people's energy that kind of pushed me towards something like sales and and I'm lucky to have ended up in medical device sales here whereas I neglected to go through that process when I was coming to the end of my playing career uh, so I found <clears throat> particularly the the stuff in the commission it was like I was working in a small team there was very li- little interaction with other people it was a remote role um uh, you know, I, I I was on maybe one or two calls a day at a push as opposed to, you know, something that like would have replicated the rugby environment a little bit more where you're just surrounded by people all day and like you're interacting with people all day. Uh, you're communicating on the pitch, off the pitch. Um, it's all about building relationships and managing relationships. So while I didn't particularly enjoy that last job, it was definitely useful in terms of um, giving me a steer on what I actually wanted out of a career going forward. Yeah. And you mentioned self-reflection and kind of like understanding, you know, what suits you best or how you'll be at your best, or what you'll enjoy most. Did you do much of that during your career or was that something that was like done in, say, Munster or Grenoble for the short period? Like how you can be your best self or how you plan, like you mentioned, planning your day and all that other stuff, which is all very important into feeling your best and being your best. Was was there stuff like that in the setups or? there was a certain element of that uh you know you would do all the kind of box sticky like you know goal setting stuff what do we want out of this environment what kind of people we do we want to be you would have all that stuff at the start of every season but you know what uh, often one season just blended into another and it was just you know re- rephrasing stuff that had been said 
12 months previously, which is totally understandable. I mean, there's only, like, you, you can't reinvent the wheel when it comes to professional sport. You know, things have to be done in a certain way. Um, I would say that, yeah, we got to do some interesting stuff like personality profiling and Munster, for example. We did that a couple of times. Uh, and that was quite insightful in the sense that it gave you, it's like, I guess it was, it was called an insights profile, which is kind of like a, a version of, um, you know, there are a dozen versions of them, but it's basically like a personality test that gives you an indication as to what your profile is, um, how you respond best to instruction, uh, how you respond best to others interacting with you, um, how you get the most out of the people around you, that kind of stuff, which is very important and, and was a big eye opener, really. And the most insightful part of that exercise was seeing where other people sat on the scale because that did give a clear indication as to, okay, maybe that's why he doesn't respond terribly well to coaches when they roar at them, or maybe this is why he responds well when coaches do roar at him and make an example of him and give him a kick up the ass. And that, that those couple of times we did that was very useful for me throughout my career. Cause it was the same in France. Like you, I guess, culturally rugby professional rugby at least in ireland is very homogenous uh you know it's bulk bulk guys are are middle class white irish guys um and, and that's totally fine but you go to somewhere like france and there's there's a far bigger cross-section of society there you've got people from various backgrounds from france um you would have like like a significant number of people who've come from immigrant communities to france then you know in grenoble we had a huge contingent of pacific islanders um, both guys who had actually grown up on the islands and then moved directly to France or guys who had moved to New Zealand and then to France or guys of Pacific heritage who were born and bred in Australia or New Zealand, but still very attached to their family's culture. Um, so you had this big like clash of cultures and, and it, it was always something I went back to that kind of what I learned doing that insights profiling because you could see it quite clearly like certain guys were quite you know imposing physically but quite fragile when it came to how they reacted to criticism and you know the coach saying the exact same thing to five different people in that room would elicit a completely different response largely based on what kind of background they had and and you know uh, and that was quite interesting to see but there was guys that had, had had really tough tough lives like there was um one of my good pals hands was from the congo and he's Immigrated, immigrated to France from the Congo when he was 11 and uh, he had lost his mother like a few years later. So it was just like him, him, his brother and a couple of cousins. And that was it. That was his family network in France. Um, uh, and then you had guys, you know, like, you know, guys like me who'd come from, you know, kind of a silver spoon kind of background, I guess, um, having gone to private school and having come through the academy at, you know, one of the most polished rugby clubs, certainly in Europe, if not the world. Um, so you had everything in between that and, and it was really interesting. Um, so yeah, I, we, I, I guess we, we didn't do a huge amount of it, um, that kind of stuff, that kind of reflection, but the little parts that we did definitely, uh, stayed with me throughout the time that I was playing and still would today to an extent. Cool. Yeah. The, the different backgrounds and the diversity is, is cool. I like that. I, when I went to the States and then Vancouver and then here, you just started seeing it more and more where something yeah, grown up in Ireland, you just were all this, we're, for the large extent, all the same, but uh, was there anything that they did in Grenoble to help bring you together or? Uh, <laughs> not probably. I mean, nothing, I, I guess because it's kind of standard in France, like that you would have that big class. So, so like you've got, You've got it, it's less it's less now, but you up to around that time when things started getting stricter with the number of non-GIF players and non-French players you could have in a squad. You kind of had a 50-50 split in most clubs. Uh, so foreigners and French guys. So it was automatically divide there. Um, but and like you could you would gravitate naturally towards whatever your group was. Uh, and if you could speak French, then you could kind of jump between the two groups. Um, uh, which is what I was ultimately able to do, which was great, uh, despite that being a nightmare for the first six months because it was loads of me just turning up to meals and not in my head like an idiot and hoping nobody asked me any questions and not understanding a word people were saying. But ultimately, that six months of uh, graft like, stood to me and 
about nine months in that I was really comfortable just hanging around with the French guys as well, which was great. So I got to see both sides of it. Um, so you would naturally gravitate to one or the other. But then within that, you know, you had you had the Pacific Island contingent, which was quite different to the South African contingent or the Aussie contingent. There were, there were very, uh, I guess, stark differences between the groups, uh, I guess, the subgroups of each of the main groups. And similarly, in, like in amongst the French guys, you had you had local guys, you guys from the south of France. Um, you had guys from like French Polynesia who kind of got lost in the middle a little bit because they very much considered themselves Pacific Islanders because they are, but they didn't really speak much English, so um, they didn't consider themselves French. They considered they they got a, they associated themselves definitely more with the foreign contingent, but weren't able to socialize as well with us as they could with the french guys so we had all these really interesting dynamics going on and i guess like as i said to you previously or as i alluded to previously that time in france and specifically that experience of being in an organization where there was i think 17 different nationalities um that really cemented my desire to go and just see as much of the world as, as i can and kind of live in different places and um immerse myself in I guess different cultures to what we get back home because yeah as you say um we're we're pretty pretty vanilla for the most part at home and I would say r- rugby is probably the most vanilla of of those big team sports at home as well so uh yeah it's been cool 100% and sorry I'm pretty ignorant here but the French Polynesians I know there's a good few in the national team but so they speak French is it yeah, so so they would have they would have their, their local dialect, but I guess um, their kind of common language would be French. Uh, the way uh, you, you know uh, the common language in in certain parts, um, or the common language in certain English speaking islands would, would be English. Um, yeah. So in places like Tahiti, we had the first professional rugby player from Tahiti. He's currently playing with with Bayan. Uh, we guys from Wallace and Fatuna. Um, there was a couple of guys from uh new caledonia and uh yeah they're just they're they're native french speakers because it's what they grow up speaking in schools um i guess yeah it's just due to colonization really so uh they they learn french the way we learn english and other countries learn english and uh yeah that was kind of one of the most interesting things because honestly i had heard of tahiti didn't know anything about it but i had never heard of wallace and fatuna and my first year there we had three academy guys who were from wallace and fatuna and you know it was you know I, I didn't know that place existed let alone um had i met or known anyone from that part of the world so it was a big eye opener like i remember going going home and like opening up my maps and going where are these places and just seeing um how tiny they are and how isolated they are geographically uh, and then hearing the stories about how guys would have come from these places in the middle of nowhere, like really in the greater scheme of things, uh, and had made their way to France to pursue the dream of playing rugby. It was uh, there was a lot of really inspirational stuff, uh, as you can imagine. Hundred percent, yeah. And switching a little bit, but something that I found and heard with coaches that, like you, you look at the coaches that you had that were good, and you kind of copy some of the stuff they did. That's uh, what I did, and what I've heard other people do too. But uh, while you don't say names but what like have good coach what's a good coach to you or what would you take from coaches you've had now that you're doing it yourself yeah 100 and you're dead right i mean virtually everything virtually everything i try to replicate is either taken from uh like razzy rasmus and jack Nienenbar, um or it's like line out specific stuff because I'm, I'm mainly doing set piece stuff with the rowers now uh, so, you know, Munster, Munster, we were blessed. We had, you know, some of the best line-out callers in the world, um, excellent line-out coaches the whole time I was there. So it was always a very well-oiled machine. Uh, so, yeah, 100% picking and choosing um, from what I know, I guess, because I, I haven't done any coaching courses or anything like that. So I am just drawing on my experience as a player. Um, I guess in terms of why I would value like Razzie and Jacques stuff so much, like obviously they're World Cup winning coaches, so I mean that's it's kind of obvious that you know what they what they did would be uh, a good lead to follow. But what I enjoyed about working with them or under them so much was uh, how simple everything was, like just the the beauty and the simplicity of what they were doing. Really simple messages, like almost like foolproof. You'd almost describe it as like it, almost impossible to get wrong. You know, certain elements w- were more technical than others, but 
in terms of just the general approach to uh, to philosophy and the general approach to drills and everything else. Like it was really, you know, basic elementary stuff done with intensity uh, and done with intent. And like, I, I think, I think the guys maybe sometimes roll their eyes a little bit at some of the stuff that I've done over the last few weeks, because it's really stuff that you would see another 12 side do, but it's literally stuff that world cup winning coaches still do with their world cup winning sides. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's the big thing for me. And one of the other coaches asked me, you know, what do you think makes a good coach a few weeks ago after I arrived? And I said, yeah, being able to like communicate really clearly, um, to have a really simple philosophy and ultimately to be able to get the lads up when you need to get them up and, and get them switched on and ready for battle. And there are three quite simple things in theory, but to be able to do them all and, and to be able to do them all together uh, is surprisingly rare, I would say, in rugby, uh, even in professional rugby. Uh, and it was kind of seeing the two of them in action, how well they bounced off each other and how well they took the, how would you say, took like the mysticism out of it and made it like really, really easy to understand and made the instructions really, really easy to follow. Um, uh, that, that, that's something that I think I would certainly try or like to replicate as a coach. Um, particularly at club level, and I'm sure you found this as well, is like, I guess, coaching at, coaching at a high level or coaching at a team like Lansdowne at home who have you know, aspirations of winning an All-Ireland League, that's almost easier to an extent in terms of uh, the, in terms of how broad the, the playing group is. So you know that you're working with guys who, let's say at professional level, are there to make a living, are there to sustain a livelihood. They have to work hard if they have any ambition of doing this for a long period of time. Similarly, at like an elite amateur club, you're working with guys who want to win silverware at the end of the year, who want to be competitive. So they know that they can't get away with not doing the work. Whereas you drop down a little bit and, you know, you've got guys who want to improve as much as they can, get the most out of themselves and perform well every week. But you've also got guys who like don't have much interest in training, are just there to do something social, turn up and play a game of ball at the weekend. And go on the piss afterwards. And that's perfectly fine. I was I was that guy in Belgium. Uh, but from a coach's point of view, it's obviously a much bro- like a much more difficult ship to navigate because you have to keep everyone interested. If you go too hard and you make life miserable for the guys there that are there to have fun, the guys stop having fun and then they won't turn up. But equally, if you kind of cool the jets too much and you don't make it make it meaningful for the guys that want to push themselves and get a lot out of it. Um, then equally it kind of becomes a, a useless exercise for them and they start to go, well, what's the point of me being here? So that balancing act is, uh, is a really interesting one and I, I, I definitely have a huge amount of admiration for people that have been able to do that at club level over the years. So that's something definitely um, to bear in mind. Yeah, 100%. Uh, great point to make. And it's something that's yeah very important for a coach I've found as well is to understand your players. And I've seen this um, disconnect at club levels or whatever, where a coach is mad keen on winning. And they're like, you know, look, they're on a coaching course that was ran by a professional coach talking about this, that, the other. And they're talking about implementing X, Y, Z, that Munster or Leinster or whatever South Africa are implementing. And then they're getting frustrated when your man rocks up 10 minutes late and whatever, whatever, you know, and they're get, you know, they're, what, what's the story here? You know, this isn't good enough. It's like, but like you say, it's like, he doesn't really care. He wants to get away from the misses and he wants to go and have a run around with the lads and, and have a few pints after on a Thursday. Yeah, that's right. Ex- exactly. Man. And, and like uh, the, my experience in Belgium was really good from that point of view, because it was, like I said, it was third division in Belgium and like, there's a, a loads of like buckets of really good talent there. But uh, it's, you know, it's kind of, a, it's seen as a social club. It's the club that all the, like most of the foreigners who want to play rugby in Brussels or most of the English speakers would play with in Brussels. Um, and it was, I guess, to go from my last experience having been professional rugby, albeit professional rugby in, in France, which is still has one foot in the amateur era, uh, certainly uh, it, it kind of, once you get out of that top six, seven, top 14 clubs, um, to go from that to something that was, Oh, like almost purely social, you know, the guys 
the guys were there wanted to win but ultimately you know a message went out at the start of the week and it was like who's available this weekend and if you were available okay grand let's try and build a team around who's available but if you weren't available there was no picking up the phone going oh come on like what what are you doing booking a long weekend away this weekend this is a big game it was very much like whoever whoever's there is there and whoever's not there is not there and we'll just deal with what we have on the go so obviously a, a nightmare from a coach's point of view because they're like trying to fight fires and cobble together you know a seconds team every every weekend more or less um but it was really refreshing i guess and i'm glad that that was my first experience of rugby after the pro game because i guess and it sounds a little bit cliche but ultimately like any of us the reason any of us started playing in rugby or playing rugby in the first place or getting involved in rugby in the first place is to have fun. You know, we were kids. We did it because it was something we enjoyed doing. It was a social thing. Um, it was something that you got a kick out of. And you can kind of lose sight of that when it becomes your job, like anything, I guess. Um, a job is a job at the end of the day. And if you're in that system, you do forget the initial reasons that you went into it or developed an interest in it. So it was great for me to see that in Belgium and be reminded of the fact that actually, you know, people are just here to have fun and like, yeah, we can take it seriously and we can work hard and everything else. But, you know, ultimately we're going for, a, we have a game on Sunday and we're, we're all going for a few pints on Friday night after training. And, and it was great. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic and certainly as a coach, now in particular it's something that i'm very conscious of like that balancing act and making sure everyone's or as close to everyone is getting what they want out of their experience yeah and it's something yeah like like we're chatting about but uh, a skill that coaches have to have or look at their team and like another one just thinking off the top of my head is um you know thinking four phases ahead whereas when you're coaching a club there could well be a knock on within those four phases or, you know, like you have to just look at your team and, and you know, once again, I, I was, you know, talking to under 14, under 16 coaches, all these different levels. And it's don't the what's on TV is, is nearly a different sport to what you're doing. You know, you don't need to be the all blacks are doing this or Ireland are doing this. It's like, it's nearly a different sport. Yeah, hundred percent. You're dead right. It's almost like it's almost like the difference between fifteens and sevens, almost like at a professional level. They're different sports essentially, and while you can pick and choose bits and pieces from it, I think yeah, where a lot of people fall down is seeing something and insisting that that has to be replicated at club level, regardless of what that level is. You know, obviously, as I said, I made I made the land zone reference. You no, know, you can you could probably take most of what Leinster do and replicate it in Lansdowne and it will be done properly. Uh, whereas, you know, you drop down to like a division two, a or a two B team, then you're going to have more difficulty doing that. And I think a lot of guys probably get frustrated when they try and implement stuff at that level, thinking that it's the secret sauce and realizing that it's, you know, it's just too convoluted or it's not applicable or it's not appropriate or whatever it might be. And actually one example that I would have always had, and when I was starting off playing with Shannon or like right through, I guess right through my career with Shannon, um, uh, you would be asked to like go and do a bit of throwing with like a young hooker, like a 15, 16 year old in one of the schools or a guy that was playing underage at one of the clubs. Always enjoyed doing it. But a lot of times you would see guys basically, you know, get into a squat position and put like put the ball behind their head and they're going to be tucked into their chest and basically the kind of like the, the old school kind of Jerry Flannery step or setup, I guess. And they'd be throwing pretty terribly. And I'd go, well, why, why are you throwing this way? And they'd say, well, such and such, whoever the coach was told me that I had to throw this way. Cause this is how you throw. And I would kind of have to like unravel that and explain to them that, you know, this, like ultimately what matters is you getting the ball to the target. And there are certain fundamentals that, have to be consistent across the board, whatever way you set up and whatever way you throw. Stuff like finishing your hands, uh, you know, stuff like uh, using your hips to generate momentum, uh, not being too upright when you set up. All of that kind of stuff is important um, and has to be applied regardless of what way you set up. But you can set up whatever way you want as long as you feel comfortable with it and you need to play around with how you set up to find what your groove is. Like I kind of, I guess one of my... One of my strong, the strong features of my game, certainly when I was at Munster, was the fact that I was an excellent thrower of the ball. But uh, like the amount of meandering along that I did 
throughout my time in the academy, right into my first year as a contracted pro. Um, like was was mad when I look back at it, the amount of the amount of things that I tried, the inconsistency that I had. And I probably only found my groove with my throwing, I'd say like 12 weeks maybe before I actually made my monster debut. So like I started my first like development contract in July 2013. I made my debut in December 2013. And it was probably only around like August, September, I would say that I got really comfortable with what became my technique. But like right up until that, up until being nearly 23 years of age, I was still fiddling around with this because I couldn't quite get it to click. So that's something that young guys, I think, have some difficulty figuring out. Or even in Belgium as well, like I, I would have done plenty of work with the throwers there and you've varying levels, like certain guys that have thrown for 10 years, other guys who started playing rugby six months ago and are just learning it for the first time. And um, I think people think that you have to do something in a certain way. And same thing applies, I'm sure, in your experience to like kicking, the nines passing, Everyone thinks that they have to do it a certain way that the best players in the world do it. And sure, while there are fundamental elements that have to be the same, regardless of what way you do it, I think you have people have a lot more leeway to play around with stuff than they realize. And I think that's something that coaches can lose sight of a bit as well. 100% brilliant point. And yeah, definitely. And something I found, I think, helps is... Um, and sometimes players don't want this. Sometimes players want to be told, like, like you say, like if you go down and it's like this guy has played professional rugby, he, he tell me how to do it. Just tell me, tell me what to do, and then I'll do it. And but what I've found um, can help players is they just do reps, and when you do one that feels good and that works out, think about how it felt and try and replicate that feeling. You know, so like I if the analogy of when I was younger going out kicking balls like I just kick a million balls and then you just start to get the feel of a good one you know oh that felt good what did I do there oh and just you keep trying to replicate the good feel and then all of a sudden you get to somewhere and it'd be the same with a nine passing or a hooker throwing you know what I mean but there's a lot of trial and error and uh, maybe it is a cop but I don't think it is from a coaching point of view like you say there's a few simple simple things you can say like cues but often as well it's unraveling stuff just relax player and just have a crack and then when one or two work out like oh how did that feel what did i do and then kind of build from there yeah absolutely that's a really good point as well and and it applies very strongly to throwing and uh, ian costello who's now uh head of the academy uh, at munster and was previously you know at wasps and i last would have worked with him when he was defense coach at munster a few years back but Cause he was like, uh, cause he was like, he was kind of like the universal coach in that even if even if he didn't have an expertise in it from his own time playing or his time coaching up to that, he would go and just nerd it up like about okay, what like how do people get better at throwing? Uh, and cause he worked very closely with the hookers that first year um, that I had as a pro in Munster and, and would have worked me worked with me as well when I was through the academy. And he was an excellent throwing coach because like that he he was very big on feel and like sensation so like like that and like i was saying like certain things that had to be consistent but it was like finding finding your way to get it all right to get it to come together and he spent hours and hours with us and i i would owe him a great deal of gratitude for kind of molding me into a very solid line out thrower um but like that he kind of didn't have any preconceptions because he wasn't a hooker himself or he wasn't a forward himself when he played and he hadn't coached forwards, you know, aside from being like a head coach of a club. Um, so he was kind of wise enough to go, well, like I can't tell them to throw this way because I don't know, I don't know what it's like to throw that way. So they have to figure it out for themselves. And that was a huge help. And definitely feel is a big part of getting things right um, as a hooker, because I guess I, I am being biased. I would say that like line out throwing is one of the most difficult skills to get right in rugby because the margin of error is so small and there are so many variables. Like you can't see your target when you're throwing the ball. You have to get the timing perfect. You're relying on everything else going right as well. Moving on the ground, the lift, the jump, uh, the receipt of the ball, everything has to go right. Uh, and if you deviate slightly uh, from the kind of perfect plane, 
the results can be disastrous. You know, you overthrow the ball, you throw it crooked, you throw it low and it gets robbed, whatever it might be. Uh, and the margin for error is tiny. So like feeling what a good rep like is, is crucial to getting it right. Uh, so yeah, like f- feel is huge for sure. Mm. And once you got your thrown down, say you're 25 years of age and you're really comfortable and you feel good and anyway, you've have having good games. What is, are, are some things that are, you found were very important to line outs going well? So you mean in terms of preparation or act the, like the actual execution? Yeah, just I suppose I'm, I'm thinking from I was a caller and out of my own thoughts, you know, on what I think was important. But what did you feel, you know, just say, I don't know, you're you're in the Munster team four weeks in a row. And what I don't know, what's in, what are the kind of things that were key for, you know, you hit eight out of eight. Why did you hit it? Why did you get eight out of eight last week? Sure. So I think. As I said, and as, as people know, you know, Mon- the Munster lineout has generally been a fairly well-oiled machine, you know, f- you know, for as, I guess, as long as they, uh, they've been playing professional rugby, I would say, and certainly from the mid-2000s onwards, always has been considered a strong lineout internationally. And uh, I think a big part of that is uh, the fact that it's so, it's actually such a simple system and it's not convoluted at all. So it relies heavily on, it relies heavily on pace, so so beating your opponents on the ground, um, fastballs, uh, and obviously it relies on a huge amount of work on the opposition in the lead up to a game. But from my point of view, you know, I was lucky that my time in Munster overlapped with um, Paul O'Connell's time in Munster as well. So the line of culture was really good there. But a lot of people are surprised when I say that, you know, in weeks that. Uh, Paulie was back around like the lineup menus were so tight like really short menus there might have been a dozen maybe 15 options um really heavily reliant on buzz calls just like get out of jail calls if they were on so he was a big believer and axel was the same Axel was a great lineup operator and was a big believer in just taking the low-hanging fruit and not overcomplicating something for the sake of it um and that is that's something that i struggled with when i went to france is just the, the sheer volume of different calls in the lineup menu. So um, that that was something that I, I found it hard to get my head around because ultimately what made me confident going into a game at the weekend was the fact that, right, I've nailed multiple reps of each of these options. Then I've gone into the court and I've you know spent two, three hours over the course of the week doing really good quality work. And I know exactly what these throws need to feel like, how fast they need to go, when I need to release them, all of that jazz. Uh, and you know, it's no coincidence that when I when I was going into games with that level of certainty, uh, that the lineup generally functioned very well, and I didn't have too many bad days at the office. But if you're going into a game where you have like 35 different options that can be called, you may be throwing something on the day that you haven't thrown at all during the week. You mightn't even have thrown it in the last couple of weeks, and you're kind of doing guesswork on the go. You're thinking. Right, when should I let this go? How how fast? How early? Um, what height do I need to let this go at? Um, who do I need to wait for? How quickly is he going to move on the ground? How high is he going to jump? All of that kind of stuff is stuff that at Munster you just didn't have to worry about because you knew exactly uh, how things were going to look because of that tight menu. And it kind of comes back to my earlier point about Razzie and Jack. It was just like beauty and simplicity and the, I guess the confidence to know that you don't need to have, you know, you don't need to have like three dozen options or three different three dozen lineout options going into a game at the weekend if you are confident enough that you can execute the dozen that you have better than the opposition can defend them. Uh, and I think I think that's what made and probably does continue to make the lineout at Munster work work very well. Um, there was always like a consistency in the calling system and the setups throughout the time that I was there, regardless of the personnel, it was like, it had kind of been the same for the last decade, really like, and uh, it just led on from one person to another. And, you know, obviously it helps when you're at a club that so many guys graduate from the academy. So they just know the system from 18 years of age and they just get better and better at delivering it. And obviously that's a luxury that a lot of other clubs don't have. Um, But yeah, again, nothing too complicated. I would say just simplicity and uh, like simplicity and, and like, intentful practice during the week they were the things that 
I think made the lineup run well when I was there. Yeah, 100%. The simplicity, Lanley, I come back to is just so important. And it's something I found calling lineouts and coaching lineouts. And like towards the end, I would just bring everyone into a huddle, say we're doing a red X, whatever that is. And then we just, when I shout go, we do it. So we, everyone in huddle, this is what we're doing. We walk in, I shout go, we do it. And then you'd have people saying, oh, well, would you not shout some random numbers and some random stuff? I'm like, no, no. And like, why not call in there? So then you have extra options or whatever, whatever. This is when I'm coaching more. So I'm like, no. And you'll have guys who will go in and start doing this mad shit. And you're just confusing yourselves. And like you say, if you could literally, if you have a five man with four options, if you don't win it's because of you, you, you see yeah. the pro game, uh, the pro game, they, they often will load the front. And then they'll throw uh, five meters out from the line. They'll throw it up. They're telling the opposition, hey, we're going up at the front, but we're going to beat you for speed. And 9.9 times out of 10, they win it. So they're literally saying, this is our call. And you're coming up with me. And we're both going to do this. But we're our timing's going to be better. We've repped this. And we're just going to win it. So like, it's nearly, if you don't win it, it's nearly always because of you. Unless if you're doing a seven man and you're trying to get the back to get width on the field or something like that. Yeah, totally. I agree. I agree. Like, yeah, going in with, you know, going in with a pre-call and having like your your two or three additional just like, I guess, bailout options like, yeah. you know, one one of the front, one of the middle, one of the back. Like, I, honestly, I I don't see a need for more options than that in a lineout. But particularly in France, like trying to convince guys of that was a difficult conversation because they were used to working at teams where you know like they had they, like that they were calling in the line out and that kind of sounds that sounds good in theory but ultimately you've guys now having to remember all 15 calls that they're supposed to remember on that setup and then like recognizing what the right one is or re- remembering who the trigger is uh and then just not not getting it wrong basically uh so yeah, like you say, the amount of uncertainty that adds to the equation as opposed to just saying, yeah, this is the call, this is what we'll do. If we can't do this, uh, or if I decide this isn't on as a caller, then we'll do one of these three options. But this is all you need to worry about when we go in here. Uh, I think, yeah, like the simplicity, uh, 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 it just gives you the luxury of taking so many variables out of the equation. 100%. And one thing just from a club point of view, is say when I was playing in Vancouver before I left, um, I found, uh, I suppose, yeah, even up to the provincial level, but um, you go and do that pre-call, just tell, I would just tell them, hey, you're lifting him from the front, you're going to bounce back there and you're going to do this and then I'm going up. And you just say, so you make the call, just tell the four or five people what they're doing and then you just walk in because I found like, you know, that's just easy. Just tell everyone what to do, you do it, it's done. Whereas, like I said, one person half knows their call, then it, it's it's fucked. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, and like t- to be honest, so I've kind of like I- I've been introducing the monster stuff uh, at the rowers slowly, and to be honest, I probably did it too slowly to begin with. And I was like, look, I don't want to, I don't want to dump a completely new calling system on them. I'm coming in halfway through the season. I want to try and preserve a little bit of what's there, um, even though they were having a lot of difficulty with their lineup in the first half of the season. Uh, so I was like, I was kind of gr- like gradually introducing stuff. So. They were like we we're kind of caught in the middle almost in that I was trying to hold on to some old stuff while introducing new stuff and it wasn't working out. Whereas uh, ultimately last weekend, I was just like, right, we're been in this and this is what we'll do. And I'm, I'm going to throw a load of stuff at you uh, and we'll see how we get on. And like they've they've like received it very well and reacted to it very well. And it, it worked very well last weekend as well. So I guess the the apprehension that you have with something technical like the line out is that you know, is what I did at Munster, at a team like Munster, going to be replicable, like at club level in Vancouver? Um, and like, like you know, you know, maybe maybe it can be across the board and maybe it can't be in a lot of places, but I was kind of a bit apprehensive about throwing it all at them, but like it's actually gone really well. So I'm, uh, I'm quite impressed with it because I'm being very lazy-like. I'm literally taking the exact same calling system, exact same movements, uh, and just going, look, this, this works you know five levels above where you're playing at now so just like let's go for it and uh yeah it's, it seems it seems to be working well um but yeah like that it's i guess the difficulty is is if a guy misses training on a tuesday or a thursday it kind of 
you know, it kind of renders uh, a new option null and void at the weekend if he ends up playing because, like, you can't call it, like, you can't call it, but he's going to fuck it up and then it just becomes a mess. So, yeah, maybe maybe that's something that we could look at doing for guys that maybe <laughs> missed a Tuesday or Thursday just uh, tell the guy calling the lineouts to point exactly where uh, he needs to go beforehand and that might take some of it out of the equation. Yeah, give him a hand. Hey, cheers for your time. One last one. What was, looking back, say, the best thing and the worst thing about playing pro rugby? Well, good question, yeah. It's it's usually, like, best memory and worst memory, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of, that's a more, that's a more holistic view of it. I would say, I would say the best thing about, I, I mean, without a doubt, the best thing about playing pro rugby is the fact that you're a pro rugby player, the fact that you've, like, you're doing something that you dreamed of doing. You know, I, I don't think there's, I mean, there's a, there's a young boy anywhere in the world that kind of has an interest in sport that doesn't dream of playing whatever sport he loves at some point for a living. Um, be that, you know, cricket, basketball, rugby, soccer, whatever it is. So, so to have gotten to do that is definitely something I look back on being the best, the best thing about it. But I guess that's, a little bit of a cop out because it's like not really it's not anything tangible or measurable i would say the best like the best part is to be honest is uh is how fun it is really like when and i would kind of qualify that with saying how fun it is when things aren't going really badly for you at an individual level like it's brilliant you know you're 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 doing something you enjoy you're like you're you're in an environment with people you're so close to particularly in an irish club because you're usually you've come through the academy with loads of these guys you've played underage with them so you might like i played like i started playing with simon zebo paddy butler dave o'callaghan when we were all 16 like uh so to have you know come from the age of 16 and be playing european cup rugby with guys like that is it's special and i think the fact that you're close to the people you're around um makes it that extra bit special you're you're being you're being paid to keep fit for a living and like all of that stuff and you're in peak physical condition even though you mightn't realize it at the time you probably only i probably only realize how good a condition i was in uh, as the years go on afterwards um so i think yeah it's like the fact that you're living your dream and and how enjoyable it is like when it's going well i think they're the two things that i would look back on the most i mean playing in the big stadiums and all that jazz is is great and all but if you know that's not that's not every week and it's not every day whereas every day is you rocking in the train and having a slag having a joke having crack with the people around you and getting paid to do it and i think there's very few jobs in the world that you can get to take that much fun out of your environment um uh, while being paid you know like pretty well to do it um then to i guess uh, like kind of other side of the same coin would be the worst part of it is how quickly it, like the knees can just get cut from under you. So uh, I, I guess like from my point of view, I, I had a, a quite a quick ascent to you know, European Cup rugby, I guess, from the point where I signed my first pro contract. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't outrageously young or anything, but I was playing week in, week out at the age of 23. I just turned 23. Uh, and I had like a, a fairly quick ascent to... I guess the top of club rugby, club professional rugby. Um, and then it was just like, it was gone <laughs> all of a sudden. And even though I was still the same athlete and I was still the same player, ultimately you're only as good as your last game. And if you get like two bad injuries, more or less back to back, which is what I got. And um, psychologically it's, it's torturous. Like it's very, very difficult to bounce back from that and to go from being first choice to being fifth choice in the pecking order. And, you know, being told that you're not going to be on the bench for the British and Irish Cup because all five of the hookers are fit and you're fifth in line at the moment. Like, it's tough to go from, yeah, playing in front of a, like, full Thoman Park or a full Aviva Stadium uh, and wearing the number two jersey to, you know, not getting on the plane to go to Mosley on, like, you know, a wet October to play in front of 250 people. Like, not being considered good enough to do that in that given week is tough and like uh, to like to be honest i probably never recovered from that definitely at munster and while i had a bit of a resurgence in france and it went pretty well initially i think that was always kind of hanging over me it was like that 
anxiety about the insecurity of it and how 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 prone I was to injury and how close I would be to just like being out of a job again. Um, that was definitely something I didn't enjoy. Um, but like that's that's the fact of the matter, and that's um, the life of a professional athlete, and I guess more specifically a pro rugby player. So you can't have it both ways, you know. You uh, you have to take the good with the bad, and um, uh, while it takes a bit of time to work through it, um, you kind of you just have to accept that that's part of your life, really. Um, so yeah, that they'd be my my best and worst elements, I think. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Mel, for your time, Duncan. Been unreal chatting. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Delighted we got to chat eventually um, after a couple of reschedules on my part. So, uh, yeah, enjoyed that conversation. So, cheers. Cheers for listening in today. If you're ambitious, want to overcome setbacks and achieve big things, check out my new book. The links to the paperback and audio version are in the podcast description. And there you'll also find the link to the Audible free trial. If you keep doing what you've always done, you'll keep getting the results that you've always got. It's really simple. And the next 12 months are going to be the exact same for you as the last 12 months were. If you're serious about getting different results in your life, get in touch with me through offfieldrugby.com. I work one-on-one with not just players and coaches, but anyone with a growth mindset who wants to get more out of life. Please send the pod on to some friends. I'd really appreciate that. And if you want to be an absolute legend, you can leave a rating and a review. Please follow me on social media. That's at Offfield Rugby. And my LinkedIn is Brian Moylet. If you have any questions or thoughts, send them on. I'd love to hear them. Thanks a mil for being here. Check out some earlier episodes and have a brilliant rest of your day. Cheers. <laughs>